This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Power Moves, Ignite Your Confidence and Become a Force. Written and narrated by best-selling author Sarah Jakes Roberts and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson, and I am talking today to Ashley Land. Thanks for joining me today, Ashley. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so Ashley, I originally um, discovered you in Hope Writers, which I actually think that we joined at the same time because I really, I remember your intro and you were just like very excited to be there. And I, and everything that you would write, I remember thinking like, this girl is an amazing writer. And so that was, I don't know what, two years ago or something or. I think so. Uh Yeah, I think Uh, so. And so I'm not sure how I stumbled upon your piece in Fathom Magazine. Somebody else shared it. And then I clicked on it, which is like, not like me to actually click over and, and like fully read a piece yeah. because I'm just, you know how it is. Like there's so many sure. things on the internet. Like how yes. do you even choose? I always feel right. like definitely not enough time to read all the many things I want to read. So it was kind of, um, you know, out of normal for me to like actually click over and then act read a whole article. I mean, that's a big deal. So I just, but I couldn't stop reading it because it was just such a beautiful piece. So I have so many questions about that. And we're going to get to that. But first, tell us about yourself, who you are, um, where you live, and all of that good stuff. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Ashley Landy. I'm an artist and a writer. And uh, we live currently in a rural area of Kansas. I'm from the Kansas City area. I grew up in suburban Kansas City. And we have chickens and a dog and a cat. And I have two children. Arrow, my daughter, is nine. And Israel, my son, is 11. And I stay home with them and homeschool them. And uh, yeah, so. Yeah. So were you homeschooling before COVID? I was, yes. Yeah, we've always homeschooled. They did They did do preschool, but yeah, we've always homeschooled. So what's, yeah. the, what's the impetus behind deciding to homeschool? Um, yeah, really a lot of reasons, you know, it's hard to, hard to pin down one. I think for myself, I didn't, I never really enjoyed school. And so (laughs) that it was always kind of a thought in my mind. And so far as I thought about having children, I just thought, you know, I'd like to try homeschooling. And I didn't even know that homeschooling existed until probably, I think I was in the third grade and there was a homeschooled girl that joined our Girl Scout troop. So that was kind of just this whole new world of like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that was a thing. And so I was curious about it uh, pretty much from the beginning. And I just like the idea of being able to, and I, I have totally thoughtful, wonderful friends who send their kids to school. And, you know, I think there are pros and cons to both. Uh, for my kids, I do like the freedom that we have in our schedule with it. And I also enjoy that they can progress on certain topics that they're very interested in, um, maybe in a more deep way than the school schedule would allow. But we, on the other side of it, we also have to make sure to carve out social opportunities for ourselves, you know, because otherwise we're just sitting here at home. But fortunately, we live, we live in an area where there are a ton of homeschoolers. There are so many. And so uh, we have a really wonderful network. And there are actually so many opportunities to do social events and activities that we have to say no to a lot so that we actually stay home and get school done. So 
Yeah, yeah. I've always heard um, from people that do homeschool, like that myth there, it's like a very annoying myth. That it's like, oh, homeschoolers don't yeah. get any socialization, but it's so not true because yeah, it's there's a million other kinds of social activities mm-hmm. and there's like the co-ops and all those things. For sure, yes. So, uh-huh. um, well, that's yeah. cool. I think you've probably been joined by a lot of new homeschooling parents, yes. this year, mm-hmm. especially. I know there was like a massive uptick in, in people that have chosen that um, this year. So yes. um, yeah. probably people have a lot to learn from you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much of a pro I am. You know, I feel like I do feel like I've learned so much every year. I pushed really hard in the beginning because even though I, you know, I, I chose homeschooling intentionally, I also felt as though we really needed to make sure that we were keeping up with school and, you know, with institutionalized school, I would kind of like covertly quiz their friends who were in school when they came over and say, so what do you, what do you learn today at school? What are you doing in math? (laughs) Just to see. And I've kind of relaxed about that a little bit. I mean, I think it is important for us to, to make sure we're covering as much as we can, but ultimately any education is going to have gaps in it. And, you know, there's going to be more of a focus. And we all just have different God-given gifts too. So like for me, I really, I went to a high school that um, really pushed, well, it was an all girls school. So they really, and they really pushed math and science because those aren't, you know, areas that women traditionally have been given opportunity to excel in. But me, I'm, I am not a math and science person whatsoever. I'm very much a word person. So, you know, there was really no reason for me to go through tr- trigonometry, but I did. I got a D. Um, so, oh my gosh! So, Thank God I never had to take trigonometry. <laughs> oh yes, it was terrible. My brain just, my brain just does not work that way. It does Mine not. You know, yeah, we don't do that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, so, okay, so your piece in Fathom, which for those that don't know, that's a Christian um, publication. I don't, they, do they do print? I don't think they print. No, okay. not that I know of. I don't believe so, huh? But it's, it's a great, it's a great space for people to be able to publish. And, um, and so I read your piece and first of all, I felt like it could have been in like, I don't know, Time Magazine or something. Like oh, it was, it was so, so well done. And it's about a very vulnerable topic. You wrote about um, using drugs and, you know, that part of your life and it's sort of the transformation that happened to you. So um, give us the rundown of the story that you wrote about and then why you decided to put it out there for everyone to read. Yeah, sure. So I was, it's hard to know where to begin. I was raised in, in a, somewhat, a somewhat household of faith. My parent, both my parents got much stronger in their faith as I was older. And when we were younger, it wasn't as much of a priority. So, for instance, when I hear people reference Christian subculture, you know, certain bands or TV shows or things, I'm like, I have no idea what that is because I, I just wasn't raised in Christian, you know, evangelical subculture. Um, so it's been fun, you know, discovering Christian music and, yeah. and discovering these things and things for my own children. But I just, I didn't grow up in that. And we were pretty immersed in you know, in the secular world, which I, I don't mean to dishonor my parents by saying that. Like I said, they both got much stronger in their faith as, as they got older. But I, and I had a wonderful childhood in many ways, but that just wasn't a huge part of it. And um, so when I was, I think, 14, I decided that I was an atheist. And my parents were pretty upset by that. <laughs> and so, but I, you know, 
took a hard stance and, and a lot of it was just rebellion. And, but partly it too, was too, that I had just never really understood the gospel. It, it had, I'm sure I heard it at some point. We did go to a Methodist church sporadically. And I, so I'm sure I heard it at some point, but it just never, it never took root. It, it just, you know, it didn't. And I didn't, I didn't really understand who Jesus was or what he had done for me or what he had done for all of the world. And so and so it was just easy for me to cast it off. It wasn't it wasn't as though it was some kind of deconstruction process, you know, or anything like that. And uh, so maintained my atheism through college. And I think it was my senior year in college. I had a friend who came over with psilocybin mushrooms, which are, of course, are also known as magic mushrooms, psychoactive uh, mushrooms. And I was just kind of, you know, reckless, open to anything. And so we took them and I had what seemed at the time to be a wonderful time. It was just interesting. You know, all my visual perceptions and senses were were warped and and enhanced in some ways. And I just thought it was really fascinating and had a great time. And so, but But that still didn't... I, I didn't understand the spiritual dimension of it or, or even acknowledge the superna- supernatural reality at that point. So I went on being an atheist for probably the next year. And I think maybe there was one more mushroom trip in there. Uh, but I got to a point where I felt like I needed to be able to intellectually justify my atheism. I needed to be able to, de- to defend it to Christians and to believers and to my dad. <laughs> and, and, and it's interesting. It was never. It was never. Oh, I should really investigate the Christian faith or even any other faith religion to see if perhaps there's truth there. It was. It was a foregone conclusion. Oh no, I don't believe any of that. And and I think at that point too, I didn't. I didn't want there to be a God. I didn't want to be accountable. And so I think that was that was there perhaps subconsciously too and was in play. So I kind of am embarked on a mission to justify my atheism. And, and I remember getting to a point, I I read all the new atheists and I just got to a point where I felt, I felt like this is so, if this is truthful, why does it feel so empty and hollow and, and devoid of, devoid of love and life and, and, and mystery too. I think the, the hard certainty that these, especially the new atheists seem to have, it was really kind of grating, even though I myself would have claimed that certainty. And that's reading a book, these books. Right? What's that? The book, The New Atheist, that's a book. Oh, right? well, the, so The New Atheists were a group of uh, intellectuals. So in science, I guess Richard Dawkins is kind of a scientist or is a scientist, an evolutionary biologist, I think. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Christopher Hitchens was just a British intellectual who was part of that. Um, Daniel, I think Daniel Dennett is included in that. I'm not, he might be a scientist as well. I'm sorry, I don't know. And then Sam Harris is another, mm-hmm. he's just yeah. kind of an intellectual thinker. So it's just these group of, of atheists atheists that kind of popularized atheism and rose to prominence. Um, Let's see, I was reading this Christopher Hitchens book in 2006 or 2007. So yeah, it was just a group of intellectuals who were very well known and popular. And um, yeah, and so I I just got to the point though where it all felt so hollow and I I thought, well, I believe this, I don't believe in God, yet it just doesn't feel, (laughs) it doesn't feel good. You know, and I know some atheists would point to that. Well, just because it doesn't feel good doesn't mean it's not true. But I, 
I think our deepest yearnings and our deepest desires, I think they, while not 100% reliable, obviously, the Bible says the human heart is deceitful above all things. And I think there's that aspect as well. I think, I think our deepest yearnings and desires can be reflective of the truth sometimes. There's this Fred Frederick Buechner quote that I love so much. He says, Sometimes wishing is the, the sometimes wishing is the wings that the truth comes true on. Sometimes the truth is what sets us wishing for it, and I just think that's so beautiful. And so anyway, I at that point um, just so happened I I knew this man who said I was looking for mushrooms. I wanted to take mushrooms again, and I knew this man who said, "Well, I don't have mushrooms, but I have LSD." And I said, "Oh, okay. Well, same thing. You know, whatever." And so. Uh, he came over to my apartment and we took the LSD and at first it seemed kind of similar to the mushrooms in a lot of ways, just changes in visual perceptions that were beautiful and interesting. And then things started to <laughs> turn completely south and I started to panic and um, it's hard to describe. So it would be known, you know, colloquially as a bad, a bad trip. And just the feeling of panic and terror is just exaggerated a hundredfold. I don't even know how to describe it. And so I had that experience, but it, it came to kind of a culmination where I saw this flash of light. And I, um, there's, there's kind of this mimicry in the psychedelic experience, or there can be. And I don't know if this is a, is a reflection of, um, you know, I have a friend who, was also very into psychedelics before becoming a Christian. And she said that Satan is a mimicker. Like that's all he has. He doesn't have original creation of his own. So he just mimics, you know, what God does and twists it and turns it. And so I feel like in the, particularly with LSD, for me, there was often a mimicry of a death and resurrection, like a death. And sometimes I would feel um, after the peak of the trip, I would feel washed and clean and I remember feeling that after that first time feeling like it felt like something monumental had happened to me and I couldn't decide whether <laughs> whether it was good or bad or but two weeks later I thought I want to do that again and so that kind of um, began my long gosh years long <laughs> love affair with LSE and and I I tried several other psychedelics during that time as well and sorry, I don't know how far you want me to go. So no, no, my version I'll, and I'll break in with some questions. Okay. Um, okay. I am just looking at my list here, but um, I mean, I would say, I guess, you know, you said it was several years. So like, how often were you doing it? Um, so for the, gosh, for that first year, I would take it at least twice a week, a lot of times by myself. And LSE is a very long lasting drug. So I mean, you take it, you're buckled in for a good 12 hours, mm -hmm. like a strong dose of LSD, and you feel kind of, you feel like you've been through the ringer afterward. And um, so, yeah, I was taking it, gosh, I was taking it. And then when I met my husband, I actually met him. I met him probably a year after, about a year, maybe eight months after the first time I took LSD. I met him and we actually met at our acid dealer's house. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. So that's always a fun story to tell. <laughs> well, actually funny story. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but it's interesting you know, people from church ask us, Oh, how did you two meet? It's like, Oh, do we want to be honest or do we want to just say a mutual friend's house? Wait, wait till we get so. to know you a little better. Um, right. Yeah. 
So, okay. So you mentioned in the piece that you had at one point gone to AA, which stuck out to me because I personally, now I go to sobriety meetings. And um, so, you know, you clearly at some point kind of realized like, okay, I probably have like a not healthy relationship with substances. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I guess like what made you recognize that? And then when you were in the middle of, you know, using the LSD on the regular, you know, were there moments where you were going, I have to stop this somehow, but I don't know how, or was it just like yes. whatever living in the moment? Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the AA meetings were actually in college before I had ever tried a psychedelic. I was he heavy into binge drinking in college because that was just kind of the de rigueur, you know, every weekend, that's what people did. And um, I just realized, and I was, you know, a lot of things came along with that promiscuity, just, and, and just, I remember just waking up in the morning and feeling so hollow and feeling so you know, and I would, I would say things to people when you're completely drunk, you obviously, uh, act foolishly. And so, you know, I would say things to people that I regretted saying, I would do things I regretted doing. And I just got to a point of desolation where I, I, I needed, I needed help. I needed something. And I remember during that time I went to AA meetings. It was probably only for a week. And unfortunately I, I guess I wasn't rock bottom. I felt rock bottom enough at that point, but, and I think too, I was spooked by how, how all the people there were. So obviously AA is not an explicitly Christian organization, but they do reference a higher power. And so the meeting that I went to, everyone would talk about God and everyone would talk. And I think I was kind of spooked by that. And I remember at that time too, I ended up going to a church one Sunday morning. I was probably hungover and I went to a church and a Methodist church, because I just, you know, that was kind of my foundation. I didn't know where else to go. And during, they had a, uh, some announcements, and then they had a greeting time. And there was a gentleman who came up to me and was, was so kind and, and just greeted me and, you know, asked my name, told me his name. And I remember I just felt so, I felt so dirty. I felt, yeah, I just felt so dirty. And it, I couldn't, I couldn't surrender. I look back and think, wow, if I had just, you know, answered the call at that time and surrendered to Christ, but I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't, it was like, I had this desperate need, but I also just couldn't bring myself to do it. And so I just, I left the church after everyone sat back down, I just kind of fled. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, so yeah, so the, um, and I'm sorry, I'm, what was the second part of that no, question? Yeah, <laughs> sort of um, about, you know, when you, so moving on to like later, oh, you yes. got yeah. across the AA at the church, you're doing in the middle of doing LSD, like on the regular. And yeah. at some point, like, do you have those moments where you're going, I have to stop, but I can't, like, am I going to do this for the rest of my life? Am I going to kill myself? All these things. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And th that's the interesting thing. Um, Psychedelics proponents love to point out that it's not addictive, that psychedelics aren't addictive, and they're not physiologically addictive, I think, in the same way that your traditional narcotics or even alcohol are. Like, you don't have a physical craving, and you wouldn't experience physical withdrawals if you stopped. But I think that they're very 
psychologically and spiritually yeah. addictive. And so I think they're very much addictive. They're just addictive by kind of a different mechanism than your traditional narcotics are. Um, and so there was definitely, yeah, there were definitely points where I would start, especially particularly when I started having bad trips, which weren't all the time. But I mean, the bad trips are psychologically scarring. Like really, I feel like I truly had there were a couple in particular that I truly feel like I had PTSD afterward. Um, but I, I just couldn't stop. I felt like for me, this was the pathway to God. This was the pathway to spirituality. Like I had never experienced a spiritual realm. And I felt that this was a way to experience the spiritual realm, even though oftentimes, and of course now I know the complete contrast between those spiritual experiences and the experience of the actual presence of God. And, and those experiences would often feel, often feel like an assault almost, you know, they'd often feel there was a violence to LSE in particular. There's, there's an intensity and almost a violence to it. And I remember, um, well, about six months into my usage when I was using it pretty regularly by myself, I would sometimes uh, take it with friends, but I was using it pretty regularly. And I just, I completely broke down. I ended up voluntarily going to a mental uh, hospital for about a week, but it was almost like I had this weird Stockholm syndrome with LSE where I convinced myself that it was not the problem. Like, oh yes, I had a breakdown, but that was, you know, due to something else. And so as soon as I got out of the mental hospital and went back to my apartment, I think I took LSE that night. Mm-hmm. It was like, I was that, that deceived and deluded that. And, and I think, as I said, in my essay, I remember when I realized I had to stop and I, I distinctly remember I was sitting on our front porch. And um, at that point, I think we had started kind of dipping our toes into Christianity and I remember I felt like God was telling me, you know, this this cannot be a part of your life of your, as a Christian. Like, this is not. And I realized that this just isn't. If I'm going to surrender everything to Jesus Christ, this this can't be a part of my life anymore. And I remember crying. And I, on one hand, I felt, I felt liberated. And I felt, because I, I was so wounded and scarred from all of my LSE use and psychedelics use in general. But it was so difficult to let go of it because I and it was difficult to trust at that point that God had something so much better for me, even though I could I had kind of seen the glimmers of it and I had seen the hope of it. It was difficult for me to trust, which even though LSD had had injured, had been so injurious in psychologically, spiritually, in so many ways, it was difficult for me. And I I remember crying and saying, but LSD is my friend, which and I'm so I'm glad, like you said, that that was that was relatable for you in terms of alcohol. And because I felt like when I was writing that, I felt like this is so absurd, you know, nobody's going to understand this, but I think that there is this quality of like best friend and worst enemy, you know, with, with addiction and with substance abuse. Yeah. I mean, I think you, it's like a comfort and it's, Um, and it's, um, you know, you recognize that it's a, it's a place of relief um, yes. in many ways. And so yes. when everything else seems bad, it, it falsely seems like something good. Yes. And so I guess, you know, those feelings, I, I don't have the, this experience of doing drugs, but plenty of experience with drinking. And 
So it's like that when you're doing that on the regular, you know, your normal life just feels so, can feel so like, well, this is boring. This is like, I don't even feel like myself, you know, I need that to be happy. Um, And so how did you mentally overcome those barriers? Because I mean, after you stop, you know, a certain period of time goes by, like that kind of goes away. Yeah. But in the beginning, it's very hard. So how did you do that? Yeah. And it, and it was hard for sure. I think for me, perhaps it was made a bit easier by the fact that I did feel so wounded, psychologically wounded. And now I look back and I think, wow, I didn't even understand then the, how, how much I needed healing and the the extent to which I needed healing. And, and Jesus has brought me so far, but I, I guess, so I think that it, it was helped um, for me by that. And also the fact that I, I feel like I rode, you know, I hit rock bottom, rock bottom with psychedelics. I really rode that train to the end of the line. And I actually, toward the end, I convinced myself that perhaps, you know, you come up with all kinds of rationalizations. And toward the end, I think I convinced myself that the problem was that LSD was a chemical and I should use a naturally occurring psychedelic. And so I grew my own mushrooms, which I talk about in the essay. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is the solution. This is how I'm going to have a good trip again. This is, and I had a horrible, I had a horrible trip. I grew them successfully and we dried them out. And we, my husband and I, um, one evening when our, at that point we had children, so we did not, uh, we, took my children to my parents' house, which of course my parents didn't know what I was doing. This is when my kids were very little, but um, so, you know, thank God, at least we had the the wisdom to not have our children in our care. But yeah, we took them that night and I, I just had a terrible time. And so I think for me hitting that rock, hitting that rock bottom and, and being like this thing, this thing that I once loved has turned into has turned into, um, I don't know how to put it. Well, it's like, it's an idol, you know, it's an idol. Like an idol is wonderful at first and then it destroys you. Like I felt like psychedelics were destroying me. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you write about your friend, which like there's so many profound things about your friend. So your friend's story basically is that mm-hmm. her yeah. child died of cancer. Yes. And, you know, let me find the part that I wanted to ask you about. Um, you know, I'll just read what you wrote because it was just so good. Um, so your friend, you found her at the funeral of her own child, like comforting you. Mm-hmm. You were having a hard time, which of course anybody would have a hard time at, at that yes. kind of funeral. Um, but you were really like your your mind was really sparked like about the existence of God and who He was because of her reaction to this experience. And you wrote. Who was this crucified God my friend trusted so much that the death of her child, an event I was certain would have annihilated me, couldn't extinguish her hope? Who could possibly account for, atone for, give any hope of redemption in this roiling crucible of absurdly copious suffering and dead toddlers and terror other than this Jesus, God on the cross? Um, and then your friend also you know, recommended that you listen to It Is Well With My Soul which is, as most many people know, like was written in the midst of obscene tragedy, a man that lost his entire family. It's like, 
I feel like I'm going to cry right now just thinking about all of these things. And so how did your friend affect you? Like, tell us how she affected you. Yeah. She is just such a sweet and gentle person and such a wonderful witness for, I think, the character of Jesus Christ. She, um, so I was friends with her in childhood when we were in middle school. And we kept in touch a little bit over the years. But in college was when she really became a Christian. And I remember I wrote back and forth with her a little bit then. And I just thought, I have no idea what she's talking about. You know, she talked about about how God had changed her life and how she was she was just totally on fire for God. And she was so excited. And and I I just had I just did not understand what she was talking about. And I I had a really condescending attitude toward all of it. I thought like, oh, sweet Carrie, you know, she's just a little bit naive. And 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 was, but we kept in touch over the years and especially after we both had children. And I would go over to her house for play dates every now and again, just maybe once every couple months and and I would be spouting off whatever kind of new age thing I was into at the moment. And she would always respond by quoting the Bible. And it it was never, you know, uh, combative or, I mean, she's, she's just such a humble, sweet person that there was, there was never an air of even that she was challenging me, really. She would just, you know, say like, well, you know, the, the Bible says, and then she would quote a verse. And, and it was just such a, it was such a, beautiful and effective way of of ministering to me because she like I said it it was like not even like she was trying to prove her point or she was trying to prove something to me or she was trying to even trying to convert me like it didn't feel it was just like I said it was just so uh so gentle and so and so patient too like patience is the word that always comes to mind when I think of her she she wasn't pushy she wasn't pushy but she was also firm. She was also unyielding. You know, when I would talk about something like, well, I remember one time we were talking about, um, and this was actually after I had kind of started becoming a little curious about Christianity, but (laughs) it's funny. There was this part of me that was so desperate and hungry and needed Jesus so badly. And then there was this part of me that was still so resistant and just, just, yeah, just so resistant. And I remember at one point I was talking to her about the story, um, This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, Our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Oh, why am I? Um, Isaac, Isaac and Jacob. And 
um, him taking Isaac up on the mountain and offering him as a sacrifice. And I remember saying, oh, well, I don't think, I don't think God would do that. I, I, I don't think God would do that. I think that was probably Satan, you know, and then God saved him. And, and, and Carrie was just very gentle, like, well, let's, I think she actually opened her Bible and said, you know, like, well, let's look at, let's look at it. And let's, and she was just, like I said, she was just so, so persistently gentle and unyielding at the same time. And that really had a profound effect on me. So I feel like because of, of how she was and the ministering that she had already done to me, that foundation was already there even before the tragedy struck. And then witnessing her faith in the midst of that was just so incredibly powerful. So powerful. Mm, I can't even imagine. Um, And when I said to you sort of in the pre-email was just like, I was just talking about this last night with someone, you know, a lot of times when people hear about things like that, that's the time when they go, well, if that's the kind of God that lets a toddler die, I don't want anything to do with that. And and yeah. you seem to have the opposite reaction, which I thought was interesting, like in terms of you going, like looking at your friend and saying, wow, what an amazing God that he would be there to comfort her and uphold her in this, this time of tragedy. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I certainly did have thoughts like she is the kindest, gentlest person I know. Why would God do this? Why would God allow this? Why would God? I just don't understand why God why God would allow it. And it seems so unfair. And the world is unfair, you know, like it's not. But God is perfectly just. And and I'm not saying that God took her child away from her, but that we live in a fallen, broken world where there's disease and 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 so it, it, that that certainly was hard for me on some level, but I think I think it was just so powerful to see how she reacted and how she didn't turn away from God. She leaned into God, and uh, both she and her husband. And and there was such a beauty in that, and it was just so confounding to me. And I think at the time, I would have said that I believed in a God, but it was still a fairly impersonal God because I wouldn't acknowledge Jesus Christ. You know, I didn't really understand Jesus. I didn't. And so, so I would have believed that there was some, and that was pretty much with the, with my first LSD trip. I, I forgot to mention that I quit being an atheist yet. I would not, I still would not talk about Jesus. You know, I would, I would consider any other idea about God, except for Jesus. God, but not any further. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you, when you have an impersonal God like that, then on one hand, like you don't, I don't know. It's like having a God with all the, all the downsides and none of the good sides. Like I remember in the new age world, people a lot of times would talk about the universe and kind of deify the universe in that way. And I've also heard people deify um, mushrooms and say like the mushroom taught me this and the mushroom taught me that. And, but I remember that back then there was a lot of talk about, the universe taught me this or the universe showed me this. And, and when you, when you have a God like that, you can really make God in your own image. And so I never remember hearing anyone say like, well, the universe has asked me to, to, you know, really love this person sacrificially and and to do this for them. It it was like, it was never, it usually wasn't anything like that. And so, so on one hand, I had this impersonal God that I kind of kept at arm's length. Um, 
and so I didn't have the intimacy with God. I didn't, I didn't really feel like I knew God. I just hoped that there was kind of this benevolent force behind things. But with a God like that too, there could be no robust theology of, of suffering, I guess, and theodicy, which, I mean, I have plenty of questions about God and why God allows this and why God has done things the way he has and why, yeah. why God allows us so much freedom. Like I've said before, like God loves freedom way more than I do. Like I wish he would, you know, like put a bit of a tighter rein on things, but, <laughs> but you know, I, I read this Timothy uh, Keller quote a few days ago. I think he put it on Twitter that I thought was so brilliant. He said, worry is thinking that it worry is, is believing that God is not going to get it right. And bitterness is feeling like God has already gotten it all wrong. And I was like, Ooh, that's so, that's good. You know? So, so I think, I mean, it's just a challenge for me, you know, trusting that God has gotten this right. But I think um, I had a point in that. My point was, was without a deeply personal God, I feel like there's no, if, if tragedy does strike, there's really nowhere to turn, you know, there's nowhere to. And so we can, like we see in the Bible with Job and like, and in the Psalms, like, our God is a God that, that we can wrestle with, you know, our God, cause our God is a, is a real God, you know, he's not a distant and personal God. And so we might have questions and we might have anger and I'm sure my friend, you know, I've never, I've never talked to her about this aspect of it, but, but she's human. I imagine she did have anger and she did have doubt and she did have, but, but the way that, yeah, the way that she grieved publicly, mm-hmm. I guess, was just such a beautiful testament testament to her faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing yeah. thing. Anytime I, you know, I've seen that played out in other people, like not really yeah. close personal people, but just um, through podcasts or on video or whatever. And I'm always just incredibly amazed. And I always think to myself, I don't think I could do that. But mm-hmm. you know, yeah. then, I, then I remind myself, like, you know. I'll be equipped when the time comes. Right. The time exactly. is not now and yes. hopefully not ever that experience. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but I, I have faith that um you know, I have faith that God would, would give me that um yes. in that moment. But anyway, um so you had your sort of your sorry, there was a fly. Um you're moving <laughs> on that you're you were moving towards Christianity sort of slowly. Um, and then there was a point, was there a moment, that moment that sort of you explained earlier, um, the night that after you had grown your own, were you, well, that was it? Was that the last time? And, and, and did your husband, was he like on board with you? Yeah, he was. I think he was done at that point too. And he was actually the first one out of the two of us to become interested in Christianity. And I, I was, and I was angry that he was getting into this thing that I didn't agree with. I didn't understand it. And I remember there was one night where he told me, I feel compelled. He said, I don't know about Jesus yet. I don't, I'm not convinced, but I feel compelled to figure, figure, you know, to follow this and figure out who he is. Like, I just feel the pull to do that. And that's the direction I'm going in. And I remember crying and I think I had been arguing with him about it. I'm sure I had. And so I remember crying and saying, please don't leave me behind. Cause I felt like, I just, I don't know who this person is. I don't understand it. You know, what is the Trinity? I don't. And like I said, I had, I had grown up somewhat in church, but 
somehow I managed to retain absolutely nothing <laughs> from that. Probably and I didn't even that have that have that experience. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I, I thought, I don't know who Paul is. I don't know who, but I remember too, it's interesting to, I think this is interesting to note the contrast between the kind of new age beliefs that I had developed and how legalistic anything besides Christianity can be. Anything besides Christianity is rules-based. It's a self-salvation scheme. And I remember early on, we started going to this church, Jacob Swell, which is a wonderful, wonderful church in Kansas City, just a little plug for them. Uh, we don't live there anymore, sadly, so we don't go there anymore. But um, I was, we heard a sermon on Galatians at that church. And I remember being really uncomfortable about all this stuff about you know, we live by the spirit and not by the letter and the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And, and thinking like, I can't, I need some rules. Like I can't, I don't understand this. I don't trust the spirit to help me live the way I should. Like I'm so, I was just so accustomed to rules about everything. I mean, I had rules about, I had my own rules about food. I had incorporated some kind of um, Buddhist thinking of I have to watch my thoughts. I have to monitor my thoughts to make sure I'm thinking the right things. You know, I have to um, do this and do that. It was like in, I can't remember if that's in Galatians or another letter where he says, you know, refers to these rules, like do not, do not taste, do not touch. I had, I, I had rules around, I was vegan. So I was very strict about that. I was very strict about health and nutrition and I couldn't eat any sugar and my kids couldn't have any sugar. And I just had so, I was so enslaved to all these different rules. And so it was just so exotic. Like Christianity was so exotic to me. I, I just didn't understand, you know, this, this way of living, like not living by the letter and not, not using the law to determine whether or not I'm a good person. You know, this idea of I'm not a good person at all. And then we're saved completely by grace. Mm -hmm. And it's everything, like everything is what Jesus has done for me. And I can't add anything to it. And I can't, that's, I think the offense of the cross that Paul calls it, like, it was really offensive to me because I'm like, I, bu I built this whole thing, you know, like I, I'm, I'm vegan and I do doing these things make me, makes me a good person. And so I think just realizing that um, there's a, a gentleman named Ted Wise, there's this wonderful book called God's Forever Family, a History of the Jesus People Movement in America. Mm -hmm. And I, I was really interested. I read it several years ago and reread it just recently in pr preparation for going on Unbelievable. Um, but a lot of the, there were a lot of people within the Jesus People movement in the 60s and 70s that came out of psychedelic culture. And so one of them, Ted Wise, is quoted frequently in the first couple chapters of this book. And he talks about how he was taking LSD over and over again. And, and he felt like at first he was being you know, catapulted into the, into the heavens and he was having these beautiful spiritual experiences, but he said over time, and he was of course immersed in all these new age, you know, beliefs and Hinduism, Buddhism. And, and um, he said, but in time, he said all that he found, oh, and he said he kept, he felt like he was going on an inner journey and discovering himself. And, and all he found ultimately was a rat scurrying around in the dungeon of his soul. And I thought that was such a brilliant, a brilliant way of putting it, like a rat scurrying around in the dungeon of my soul. Like that mm -hmm. ultimately, that ultimately was all that I found because that was all that was there. Mm -hmm. And um, 
so yeah, yeah. that's a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's so it's so interesting to hear. Um, I am always very fascinated to talk with people that didn't become Christians until they were adults because mm -hmm. you know I grew up in the church became a Christian when I was a kid and and so I always just think it's so powerful to hear sort of the what's gone on in your mind um, to make that case. Um, you know, was there, was it a, a, a slow transition for you or did you feel like you got it in a moment? Oh gosh, there were several, I feel like there were several moments. I ha of course I had so many questions, so many questions. And I think I'm so thankful for the church that we landed at that was kind of our port of entry because um, people were very patient and, um, you know, firm in their beliefs, but not dogmatic in a way that was off-putting. You know, they weren't scandalized by things I would say or questions I would ask. Um, and I think I think that was really helpful. And it was, there were several, I would say, um, moments where the Holy Spirit just really shook me up and reached out and grabbed me. And one of those was, I think I talked about this in my essay when I was sitting on our front porch and I, my friend had told me, you should listen to this song, It Is Well With My Soul. And I put it on a playlist and kind of forgotten about it. And one day I was sitting on our front porch and my children were playing and and the song came wafting through the, the screen window, the screen, and it just pierced my soul. And I had been, you know, of course, at this point, I'd been thinking over all these things, like who is this Jesus? Do I really, you know, do I really want to follow him? Do I really want to give my life to him? But I'm not quite sure. I feel like I need to know more. You know, that's always my, well, I need to know a little bit more. I need to, I need, I need a guarantee. I need some, you know, um, and, and of course, faith is faith. You know, we don't get any of that. And um, that, but that was a huge moment for me, a huge moment of, I feel like I, I began to understand what Jesus had done for me and understand it in a deeply personal and intimate way. And I think for me, the intellectual confirmation really came afterward mm -hmm. as I kept learning I kept reading the Bible and reading some apologetics books. Yeah. And also just really reflecting on, on my experiences and also the, the contrast of, um, and I, I wanna say this carefully because I, I knew very kind people in the new age communities that I ran in. Um, the yoga studio where I practiced for a long time, very kind people, generous people, but well, let me offer this as an example. So my husband had, a, and I had a crisis in our marriage several years after we had become Christians. And at that point I still had a lot of my, or several of my new age yoga friends. And, but I also had believing friends. And I remember at this point, a lot of the, um, my new age yoga friends, they, they were compassionate and understanding, but, but they didn't really, really have any hope to offer. They didn't have, you know, a lot of them said, well, if you, if you want to get a divorce, I'll stand by you. And I thought, well, that's not, that's not what I want. It, whereas my Christian friends had this solid, tangible hope to offer me. And the hope of course is Jesus Christ, you know, regardless of whether my marriage survived, thank you, God, it did. And we celebrated 13 years of being married this past summer, but, but I think that really, that really brought out the contrast to me of like, in the new age community, like what, what actual hope is there? There's no foundation. There's no, 
you know, everyone has, you know, the new age people can be, you. what's that? It's like, you're just living for, it's just for right. you. It's yes, not exactly. for anybody else. And I, exactly. that, that take, that kind of reminds me just of, you know, I think the family, the family, the nuclear family is yeah. like such, it's so important. Like mm -hmm. not only just for stability, like when you look yeah. at statistics, it's like, is that girl up in a, you know, with married parents that don't get divorced, like the rates of like everything are way up here. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say anything bad against anyone who's been divorced because sometimes that is a legitimate thing that has to be done. And I have plenty of people, so I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, but just, um, sometimes I think it takes like a deeper perspective and a deeper knowledge of like what God is doing for you yes. in the world to be able to push through and, and, and persevere through some yes. of those things like right. a potential divorce or, you know, whatever else the struggle is. Yeah. But when it's all about like fulfilling, you know, what, whatever makes you happy. Yeah. Like the yeah. thing to say, well, whatever makes you happy may, may not be the best decision, <laughs> you know, exactly. Yeah. And it may be the right decision. It's not always the right exactly. decision. Right. And yet that is what the world tells us. Like they tell yes. us, like, if you're going to be happier, not married, you should, you should get divorced. If you're going to be exactly. happier, um, you know, I'm trying to think of another example because I know that's not the only one, but just like whatever it may be. But it's yes. like when you have this deeper purpose, like it's a whole different perspective because like yes. this lifetime here, this life here on earth is so short. Mm. And like we have a greater purpose and like people don't really consider what is their purpose. I don't feel like people right. consider that very deeply. Especially yes. when you're young, because you don't have to. It's like right. the older you get, the more you start being like, whoa, like this is going to be over. <laughs> right. Like, I'm almost yeah. 40. Like, yeah. Yikes. I am too. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So anyway, sorry, that was my little tangent, but um, I, I get that vibe. And I, yes. I said in my email, like in my sobriety meetings, like there's always this talk about like when they talk about God, they're like, you know, God, your higher power, the universe, whatever you want it to be. And I'm always like, I just can't, like, I have to like almost like step out of those meetings because I can't relate to that kind of relationship with a right. part of your own creation. Right. Um, yeah. Because you're not, you're not accountable to that God. Yeah. You know, like that's, yeah, there's no accountability. There's no, and I don't see without accountability, like sometimes Jesus, well, you know, often, I guess, Jesus asks us to do things that we don't want to do. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to love unlikable people. We're called sometimes to suffer. And that was another thing I was going to say. Uh, with Jesus, suffering has purpose. Whereas in the world, like, well, why would you suffer? You know, like, right. like why, why would you? Right, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's so many things um, when it comes to, you know, what, whether it be a, a pin or something else like I have to remind myself sometimes well if someone's not a Christian like there's no reason that they would look at it that way right so yeah it's a completely yeah. different mindset um and so yes. yeah the world isn't gonna they're not gonna understand and they're not gonna think the same way as you um so anyway I'm kind of going off off track here um but okay so moving on to present day here we are several years later I guess this was what 
six or seven years ago or more when you sort of made this transition to Christianity? Yeah, I think eight years it's been, I mean, I didn't mark down the date, but I think it's been eight years since that last mushroom trip. And so, and, and yeah. so how would you, I know it's hard to encapsulate this, but you know, how would you describe how things have been in your life since then and how they've changed? Yeah. Wow. Um, gosh, well, like I said, I feel like I had a lot of psychological injury that, that God has been so faithful to heal me from uh, so much of that, from all of my drug usage. And, and it's, that's been a long, slow process um, for gosh, probably the first couple of years afterward, I would have flashbacks usually once or twice a month. And it was always uh, waking up in the middle of the night and I would just visually see, you know, all the, which for me was always one of the most attractive aspects of the psychedelic experience was seeing all the, because I'm an artist, seeing all the visuals and geometry, but I'd wake up in the middle of the night and just be full on, you know, like I was on a drug and I would just sit there, oh God, no. <laughs> and I would pray and it would, it would always fade away. And now that happens maybe once or twice a year. It really doesn't happen very often anymore. So I feel like God has brought me such a long way with that. And I'm so thankful. And gosh, our lives are just are just so different and so much richer for having a Christian community that we do. And um, that was another thing when my husband and I, we were very immersed. On one hand, we were very immersed in these communities like people other people who take psychedelics and i had a new age meditation circle that i went to for a while and i had my yoga community that i was a part of and like i said people can be very kind-hearted and um but as far as deep involvement in one another's lives like we didn't have that and so especially once we started having kids and a lot of our friends who were you know kind of hippies they none of them had kids and so we felt kind of alienated by that and I feel like when we went through difficult times, I had postpartum depression and almost psychosis. Uh, it was very severe when I, after our son was born and they're just really, you know, we just didn't have community. We didn't have anywhere to turn. And so I'm so grateful for Christian community, you know, and people that, um, so it's almost four years ago my sister died from a drug overdose mm -hmm. just out of nowhere we didn't even know she was using drugs which um of course that's a very long story but uh i think i think to me i just felt so felt so surrounded on one hand profoundly suffering grieving mourning but i felt so surrounded by the love of christ through you know, the community of believers that I knew and who were brothers and sisters in Christ. And then my dad actually died eight months after that. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very intense time. But I just felt, I felt so loved and held and supported. And um, also I read a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote recently, which I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember exactly. But he said, the, like, we need one another because the word of Christ in our brother is stronger than the word of Christ in us. You know, like we need someone like we can preach to ourselves and we can repeat the truth to ourselves, but oftentimes it's stronger coming from someone else. You know, like I've had that experience so many times where it's like, yeah, I believe something, but when someone else speaks it over me, it feels so much more powerful and it feels so much more true. And so I really felt that pro profoundly during that time. Um, and yeah, I our, our lives are just 100% different. And and 
not necessarily like 100% easier in every ways, you know, following Jesus is not not easy. Like that's not not the point, but but so much richer and deeper and more beautiful. Yeah. I love that so much um, because I feel like so often in the like online spaces, we hear constantly about church hurts. And I'm not saying that doesn't exist, that 100% exists. Um, but to hear your beautiful story of the church community coming around you in these times. Yeah. I think, you know, to me, I want to get that out there to, to let people know that, like, that happens too. And yeah. Like, yeah. that's an important story to tell as well. Like, we need to process, like, yeah. the painful experiences that people have had, but yeah. also to recognize that those aren't the only experiences out yeah. there. Yeah. And so, um, you know, one of my goals right now, as I'm writing a book about church, <laughs> is, you know, to talk about these things. And to uplift these experiences of people who came out of like backgrounds like yours um, and found this beautiful solace and comfort inside the church. Yes. yes. And I just think that's so awesome. And we don't hear about those things enough. So thank nice. you for sharing that. I yeah, really love um, Before we sign off and don't hang out or don't like leave right away when we do say goodbye. Um, okay. I want to ask you, I always end my interviews asking people like books they can recommend or podcasts yeah. they've been loving. I love to give recommendations. So go ahead and give a few to us. Absolutely. So I, I made a little list after I read your question this morning. Um, so I love, as far as Christian writing goes, um, I really love Frederick Beekner and his book, Telling the Truth, that the, I think it's the gospel as comedy, tragedy, and fairy tale. Um, and he, he goes some places, just a caveat, he does go some places theologically um, that that I would not go. I guess he might be considered slightly more liberal theologically. But as far as imaginative, like creative writing about um, Jesus and about the Bible too, there's just nobody like him. I love and And his ability to like, pierce the soul and be so heartbreaking and hopeful and, and beautiful at the same time. I just love him. Um, and there's an author named S.M. Hulse, who I think she's published by a major publishing house, so not a Christian publishing house, but she has written two novels, Eden Mine and Black River. And they're both just absolutely beautiful tales of redemption in the midst of tragedy and very real, very raw, but also just beautiful, like very, um, and again, I say they're published by a major publishing house, but I would very much consider them Christian novels that are really beautiful. Um, so We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis is one of my all-time favorites. Um, and there's a book just recently that I read, Imagining, Reimagining Apologetics by Justin Ariel Bailey, um, that I thought was incredibly beautiful. One of those rare books that's it's informative and helpful on a practical level, but also really beautifully written. Mm. Uh, that's one of my favorite. And then probably my all-time favorite uh, theological book is Proper Confidence by Le Leslie Newbigin. He's one of my favorites. He was a missionary in India for, I think, 30 or 40 years with his wife. And then when he came back to, he was British, when he came back to the UK, he realized all of a sudden it had turned into a missionary field, you know, because it had been so 
fairly secularized yeah. since yeah. he had been in India. And he passed away, I think, in the 90s, maybe. But his Proper Confidence is just the most amazing book. It's it's not very long, but it's a um, kind of a summary of how we came to think the way that we do about this delineation that people have between subjective and objective truth. And he talks about how it, the, the book begins with a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer um, faith alone is certainty and Jesus Christ alone is the certainty of faith. And so anyway, it's, it's a brilliant book. I've read it several times. So gotta, you have lots of good quotes. I need to <laughs> copy all of these down. <laughs> so, are you a podcast person? Do you like any podcasts? I do, you know, and I don't listen to them as much as I should. Sometimes I'll listen while I'm washing dishes or I'm, but, um, I homeschool since I homeschool my kids, they're always with me, you yeah. know? And so I, I, I'm, yeah. And I'm very open with them. Like, you know, hopefully this will turn out okay, but my husband has been, and I have been very open with them as it's become age appropriate about our past and our drug use. Um, but I'm trying to think, I love Unbelievable with Justin Brierley, which I was on last week. Yeah, now um, I'm really wanting to check that out because I have never listened. Yeah. Yeah. I love that podcast. And so I've been listening to that for a long time. Um, I love listening to uh, Gospel and Life by Timothy Keller. Those are just Timothy Keller sermons. I love him. Um, Keller, come on. Right? Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. And, um, oh gosh, beyond that, I'm so bad. I need to start listening to podcasts more. (laughs) Like, yeah. Honestly, seriously, you'll get addicted. Yeah. I listen to way too many, so I totally... You don't need to listen anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this one when it comes out and share. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to say goodbye. I have a couple more things okay. to offline, but um, thank you so much okay. for your time and sharing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Erica. Thank you. Okay.